Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, March 23rd. We are switching things up. New format. Our episodes have been getting quite long, uh, which is a little too much work for Brady. Uh, not really, but we just think it can get boring to have it that long. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take any interviews, any discussions that we have with other people, we're going to move it to the front. Uh, so best stuff first, and then you guys can feel free to stick around for our casual banter. Um, but today, instead of a strict interview, we're basically just doing an open discussion with Brad and Ian. Uh, if you listen to this show frequently, you know who they are. Um, but it's best idea, best new idea, and we're kind of feeling it out. Uh, I know for me, it's something I don't have a position in. I don't think I could have a position in it because uh, it's private. But um, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but we're basically just vetting ideas off of yeah. one another. Uh, if you've f- listened to the Investors Podcast and they have that quarterly mastermind discussion, we basically stole that idea, but doing it more into our format, you know, individual companies, kind of the more, you know, this, uh, these aren't things we necessarily own. We're just trying to feel out the ideas or missing what do the other people think of it? Yep. And then we are still doing a story if it's relevant. So we'll do a big story if there's one to be talked about. But to, this week, I didn't find a huge one. So you have one um, that's an yeah. acquisition. Do you want to talk about what that yeah, is? Yeah, Can- Canadian Pacific buying Kansas City Southern. Huge railroad acquisition, underfollowed industry that has done phenomenal over the past two decades. So Gotta take a look at that. Okay, and then we're still gonna do hot water, buy, sell, hold, and anecdotal evidence. But before we get to the discussion, sales pitch time, and we are raking in the numbers. Uh, That's good. Yep, pulling in plenty of subscribers. Uh, I guess it's probably more seven investing than ourselves, but uh, yeah, keep it going. Yeah, keep it's an easy it's an easy sell with uh, keep the keep hitting perf- the buy button. Yes, the uh, CCM is the code ten dollars off. It helps us. Yep, and it would be only seven bucks to try it out if you use our promo code. I mean, it's a pretty easy service to sell. Everyone there is nice. Let me break They're, it down for you. Okay, okay so go ahead, it's go ahead. Uh, seven dollars for seven picks essentially for the first month. So you're doing. Uh, $1 per pick. I promise you, they spent more than an hour on this pick. So you're essentially paying these well-trained analysts, advisors, uh, to give you an hour, more than an hour of their time for a dollar. Just go ahead and do it. Uh, That's the math. Uh, It makes sense. Use code CCM in order to do it. Uh, Without further ado, let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we are welcomed by Brad, Ian, myself, Brett, uh, kind of a roundtable discussion here. This is the first time all four of us are in the same Zoom, and it's kind of just open forum. We're talking, I don't think we own the businesses that we're discussing. Maybe we do, but it's we're sort of betting ideas off of one another. Um, yeah, we named it New Idea Discussion. Do you guys have any good names for it? I don't know what to call this. but Yeah, we need a clickbait headline. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. We'll stick with new idea discussion. Anyway, okay. I'm going to go first. And so the company that I'm talking about is Procore. And the way we're going to do this is kind of a little two-minute pitch. And then the rest of us can kind of ask questions and we'll go around the table. Yeah. Um, 
But Procore, for anyone that's unfamiliar, is it's a construction management and workflow platform. So think it's not apples to apples, but think of like Dropbox, like that sort of collaboration tool, but it's on the construction. It's really for the construction industry. And so a lot of this stuff used to be done with like Microsoft Office tools. Um, and this and construction is such a unique industry in that there's uh, there's the office and then there's the job site. And so they have to collaborate from two different places. And on the site, you're going to have probably a tablet and you're going to be taking pictures of like corners of stairs and sending it back and stuff like that. And so their namesake platform is the construction management platform, but then they've built bolted on all these other features. So like the financial management part, um, they have resource management. So you can kind of manage who all uh, is working in certain parts, that kind of thing. And then there's a lot of tools for owners now as well. Um, but on any given construction project, for anyone that's unaware, there's a lot of different stakeholders. So there is the owner, there's general contractors, there's specialty contractors, architects, engineers. I might be missing some. So yeah, and specialty contractors are called sub- subcontractors. Okay. And they, they basically, they're helping all those teams collaborate together. And you can add on like... Uh, like if you subscribe to Procore, it's based on per project. That's sort of how the pricing works, but you can add on contributors, even if they don't subscribe to Procore. Um, and they have 10,000 customers around the world. They had 400 million in revenue in 2020. They actually postponed their IPO originally. So they plan to do it, I think two weeks before COVID hit. And then there was all that market turbulence. So instead they just postponed the IPO and they took 150 million at a $5 billion valuation in private funding. And then they just released a re-amended S1 um, or amended S1 uh, and they plan to go public again. Um, a little bit's changed, but generally the business has been pretty steady. Uh, other competitors that are notable, Autodesk and Oracle, Oracle, acquired their way into the space. Um, Autodesk did as well between their acquisition of Plan Grid and uh, what's it called? Humble Connect or something like that. Building Connected. Building Connected. Um, and then there's also Trimble, but Autodesk kind of has this construction cloud and they're sort of the most daunting competitor, I'd say, because it's a logical next step because so many architects, engineers use or designers use Autodesk tools. So they're kind of using it as this next level up for the construction space. Um, but we don't have a whole lot of solid numbers on the construction cloud yet. It's I'll give been, you a no- Well, it's been talked about in conference calls. Yeah. I'll, I'll save it for my, my uh, concerns, but yeah. Okay. Let you finish. But that's kind of the basics of the business. Uh, they, like I said, the valuation was 5 billion a year ago, but that's private. We don't and know how it's going to IPO. What uh, they had, what, 290 million in revenue in 2019, right? So revenue, even during COVID is growing pretty yeah, I think strongly. 38% year over year during yeah. 2020. But remember a lot of the, uh, I see Ian's question here, so I might go vaguely into it, but there's a lot of construction projects that were stalled or halted or even stopped altogether. Yeah. And they're paid uh, or the contracts are based on projects. Um, I think there might be a fixed subscription costs as well, but it's mostly based on the contract size or the project size. And a lot of the times they're working with the giant general contractors, right? So they're trying to get Procore into that. And then they basically give access to all the different people working under the general contractors that are running these big 
job sites, for example, like at a state. Is that true? Yeah, they specialize really with the general contractors. I mean, that's how they started was just construction management for general contractors. Um, and they actually started in 2002, but like Wi-Fi on job sites was terrible. Um, and so it didn't really get a whole lot of adoption. But then when internet connected devices kind of grew, I think in early 2010s, late 2000s, maybe late 2000s. So mobile phones big or sorry, smartphones are big phones, phones, tablets, um, anything internet connected that people can use on the job site. Once those were sort of boomed, then Procore saw massive adoption. Um, yeah, I think that hits pretty much everything basics of the business. So whoever wants to fire some questions. Why don't we start with Brad? We'll kind of go through first. I'm going to throw you a curveball just based on, on what you or on the pitch you just gave. So, so uh, I don't know if this, if this is a good question or not, but we'll see. Um, so Autodesk and Oracle, you said both purchased their way into the space. So do you kind of view the construction space as more of a, is more of kind of like resistant to the, the Viva systems and, and, and the other software players who are operating in other verticals and that they kind of have to purchase their way into the space or maybe even purchase this company to compete? Um, I don't know Viva systems well enough, but it just, so there were like, so plan grid was planned grid and building connected or whatever. Those were the two that Autodesk acquired. Those were growing businesses and Trimble is a private business that does something similar. Um, so most of the ones that have been successful in the construction space started purely as construction. Um, and then they got acquired. Um, I, maybe it's too hard for Autodesk to kind of build it on their own. It is sort of, I mean, if anyone could build it on their own, I would imagine it would be Autodesk because they have so much insight into the industry and they realized they had to pay, I think they paid 875 million in cash for plan grid. Yeah. Um, they're a serial acquirer. So it's kind of expected. They really do acquire or, basically everything. Oracle's the same way. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. I think it is super specialized. And it's not, you know, Slack can kind of fit any, like a Slack, that kind of solution can fit for any business. It, that kind of stuff doesn't work as well on a construction site. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know all the evidence that you're showing us and that I'm seeing kind of points to that being the case that it kind of is specialized and is kind of more resistant to someone just creating a product out of, out of the blue and competing than, than some other parts of cloud computing are. Yeah. And there's also, there's still a lot of manual systems. Like people still do pen and paper contracts, which is kind of surprising. Uh, but the construction is one of the slowest adopters of digital solutions. So I think all, I think a lot of the businesses are going to grow. I don't think there's Brett and I have kind of had a debate about it before, but uh, I don't think it's a winner-take-all space. For sure. Uh, Ian, you got one? Yeah, so I had a follow-up question. You just kind of answered a piece of that. Um, I was going to ask you about whether you think it's a winner-take-all market. And the reason I'm curious about that is it seems like um, construction is going to, like if if construction is going to change, it seems like it's going to be want to be streamlined and everybody's going to want to be using the same system that if you have contractors and subcontractors using different systems, that that's not really going to work very well for the different projects. Um, and it's also harder to learn, right? The, like you said, things change kind of slowly. And so people, people want to learn 
one system, know that system, use that system rather than knowing, you know, various different softwares. And it seems to be kind of the pitch of both Procore and Autodesk um, is, hey, learn our system. We can do everything in here, all that type of stuff. So I, could you speak a little more on why you um, don't think it's a winner-take-all market? And I think I probably agree with you that it's like a big market. Like there should be room that two successful companies could have, you know, lots of revenue and all that type of stuff from this market. But it's a question of, it's more of a question, not of how big the market is, but whether the market actually lends itself to um, having multiple players. Yeah. So part of the reason I don't say it's winner take all is because there's no closed ecosystems really. So the, uh, like, if you're doing like 3D modeling, that kind of documentation or like a certain file type, um, it can it translates to either Autodesk Construction Cloud or Procore. So they're, they're kind of integrated together that way. So you can share with someone using a different platform. The other thing is like, we I, I pitched this at the Motley Fool this summer, which was, and I talked about, there's like the education part. So there are, uh, it's pro core system in a lot of construction management firms uh, in colleges or not firms, construction management classes, classes, schools, schools, schools uh, in college, they're taught like that platform is kind of taught in some of the classes. So you're getting the employment pool is coming in. Uh, already understanding the system. Now, I imagine Autodesk is probably doing something similar. Yeah, I mean, Autodesk has a huge history of being successful with their other things and more engineering and architecture where they lock in basically all the classroom users for free. And then right. that, then they learn the platform and then they can you know do the stuff. But and it's going. just switching costs. Uh, like, I don't want to... It's not... Like, the people that are working on the job sites don't always have time to learn an entire new software platform yeah. and it's sometimes not worth their time. Um, and so switching is hard. Uh, it, you got to get, if you have a, if a general contractor has a hundred people working on different systems, getting them all to change when you're already facing deadlines or delays or stuff like that, it's just kind of a tall task. They don't have any like specific churn numbers on the 10 or the S one. Um, but it, it, it's very valuable to the day-to-day lives of their customers. Yeah, and their DE, uh, their dollar-based net retention rate is about 120%. So that gives a good indication of the churn numbers. It um, dropped off in 2020. But. Okay, but that's kind of to be expected. It was it was at about 120%. The, yeah. And then to maybe clear things up for you guys, because this is something I kind of, I've been researching a little more. It's not the, they all, both Autodesk and Procore, and I'm assuming Oracle, they have basically these app marketplaces, which would be similar to, I mean, Dropbox or Slack maybe for a more broader aspect where they can basically connect to all the different apps you would use. Now, Autodesk has maybe a more vertically integrated solution, but if you subscribe or are a paying user of an Autodesk product, a lot of the times, I believe, at least currently, they could maybe cut, you know, Procore off. Potentially, I don't think they would do that, but you can plug in to the Procore platform. So Procore is supposed to be basically the hub for all parts of the construction, um, like yeah. communication or, you know, any, any type of thing you have to use, it should go, th- you, theoretically, you're supposed to go through Procore. I imagine there are massive consequences to Autodesk just pulling the plug on integrations. Yeah. Uh, there's probably a contract too, but anyway. Do uh, you have any questions? You kind of know um, well too. Yeah, I mean, I like, okay, so the... We, it's a we own Autodesk. Industry. Yeah, so I guess we should full disclosure there. We own Autodesk, but 
The only concern I have is the numbers that Autodesk has brought out where they're saying that their dollar-based net retention rate is about 130% to 135%. That makes me a little concerned that they're growing faster than Procore if I was in if I was in the camp. construction cloud or yeah, overall? in the construction cloud. The so that's a little bit of a concern. And then the fact that they own the BIM, you know, it's 3D modeling software where their ability to integrate it, it almost feels a bit like Apple with something where they can integrate everything, uh, where they're the ones that all the architects and engineers are using. So that concerns me a bit with Procore, where that could be a competitive advantage for Autodesk. Um, but I really don't know. Like, it, it, is Procore going to... I don't know. Are they going to be fine with that? Is the secular trend? I mean, it's going to be strong for the next decade. I don't, I don't know. There's, there just seems like there's a lot of questions with Procore that I don't know what the answer to. I think Procore will have to spend more to attract new customers. Right. Um, I think there are still a lot of firms that haven't adopted the digital solutions and they might have to spend more to acquire them. But I also don't think the big customers they have are going to leave. So, Right. And uh, then that's why I say it's not a winner take all. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you. What guys, I, uh, do you guys have any other thoughts? Or, I don't know. <laughs> I agree with, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do we want to, who wants to go next? Brad, you want to hit it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I cheated a little bit. Um, I picked an ETF that holds things that I already own in my portfolio uh, because um, I, I don't know, just, just because. So the ticker is MSOS, uh, that stands for multi-state operators or MSOs. Um, it is an American cannabis ETF exclusively focused on growers that sell um, in the States. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of do a qualitative and then quantitative um, bull case. So in, in terms of qualitative, uh, states are, are quickly legalizing um, and, and it doesn't appear as though the, the legalization is gonna slow down with, with COVID-19 kind of destroying state budgets. And in, in a massive black market that, that is just ripe for conversion um, with governments having every single incentive to do so, to, to, to regulate it, to make it more safe for consumers on the products that they're consuming, and also to collect those tax dollars that, that, that these states really, really, truly and desperately need right now. So um, that, that's, that's the qualitative case. And, and the quantitative case is this is an industry in, in, the, in the very first inning, I believe, of growth. Um, with, with compound annual growth rates ranging from, depending on where you look, 10% upwards of 25%. Um, and and there's, there's really nothing standing in the way of these companies from just continuing to grow for years to come, in my opinion. Um, and, and I say that because they're, they're currently delivering uh, in terms of um, top line growth, in terms of extremely fat margins. And I also say that because, or, or, or let me let me go through uh, one of the top holdings, Green Thumb, um, to, to kind of give you a sense of the quantitative side of things. So this trades at this is one of the more expensive. Um, this is one of the more expensive companies in the ETF. So 77 times earnings, 26 times EBITDA, nine times sales, 57% gross profit margin, 37% EBITDA margin, and 133% top line growth. And not only do I, I think based on all these industry estimates that growth is going to continue, but there's also macro tailwinds for this for this ETF that, that I'll go into right now. So none, none of these companies that that are in the underlying ETF are U.S. listed. They're all um, they're all listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So they're they're pink slip stocks over the counter. Um, that's important because at this point in time, there is zero institutional support for any of these companies. None none whatsoever. 
So once the uplisting occurs, which according to the new administration is, is a matter of when, not if, then we get to see the institutional support meet the retail demand. And I think that'll, that, that'll be very positive for multiples. Another very big potential tailwind for this industry is a tax provision called 280E. And what this tax provision does is essentially prevents every single company selling a federally illegal good, which cannabis is still federally illegal, um, from deducting ordinary business expenses from their tax bill. So these cannabis companies are paying ridiculously high tax rates and they're still posting positive gap net income and they're still posting 37 per, or, or they're still posting 14% net income margins um, that EBITDA wouldn't be affected by that. But once that 280E is reformed, which, which again, again, I really think that's going to happen, um, that, that really would help that really would help every single company in the space. And then lastly, what I would talk about is their cost of capital right now, because also they're not listed um, on the New York Stock Exchange is also crazy high. Green Thumb, which is the highest, one of the highest quality growers in the industry is paying, a co- is paying an interest rate well over 10% on any, any kind of um, debt that they're issuing. So I, I think that as uplisting occurs, as safe banking hopefully occurs, the cost of capital is gonna come down and we got our very first sense of that by, by Green Thumb, um, they, they, they had the first historic, in, in the history of American cannabis, the very first IPO um, on available for accredited American investors, um, $100 million that was gobbled up immediately by one institution that everyone thinks is BlackRock, but I have not been able to confirm that anywhere. So please do not quote me on that. Um, but as soon as I can confirm that, I will. Um, so yeah, I, I think the institutional demand is going to be incredible. The, the, the organic growth is pretty already astronomical and set to continue for a very long time. And yeah, there's just a lot of, a lot of good things going well for, there's a lot of things going well for this industry. And then last thing, I know I'm kind of rambling, so I'll make this part short. Um, The relative value between these companies growing, growing and selling in the United States and being listed in Canada versus the companies that are listed in the United States and growing and selling in Canada is absolutely absurd. So I'll give you I'll give you a sense of kind of canopy growth versus green thumb. Canopy growth has nearly um, double the EV with slower revenue growth on a lower base with with a negative five hundred percent gap net income margin versus versus a twelve percent gap net income margin for green thumb. And as you go down the list of all these holdings, the difference between green thumb and the American growers between and the valuations of the Canadian growers it's astronomical. So, so there's, there, there's a lot that I like about this, and I do own three of the underlying holdings, but I am considering shifting some of that money in, into, an ETF, into an ETF like this one um, because the industry is moving so quickly, because um, new regulation could change the, the competitive dynamics of, of everything, and because in that environment, I'm not, I'm not sure I can continue to pick the, the strongest operators. So, yeah. That was that my question. My, that was kind of my question. I, I was going to say, like... Uh, why'd you choose this format of betting on the space? Because it seems when I think about the cannabis industry, I think there are going to be winners uh, and big winners, but I think there's going to be a lot of losers. And that's, so I guess my question is like, why the ETF? Why not pick the businesses that you can vet? I know you just said you own most of them, but why would you transfer money from the companies you like to the ETF? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I think um, I should probably mention that if I do this, I, I guess I, I would say 75, 80% of my equity would, re- would remain in my favorite operators and not in 
in the ETF, but it's more of a, it's almost like a hedge against um, potentially not being able to pick the best operators and potentially being wrong about um, where I see the future winners coming. Um, And the ETF would be a good way to kind of benefit from the the rapid growth and the margin expansion that I see in the industry as a whole, um, rather than picking um, winners that I I think, I, I think I'm pretty confident I can choose um, based on current results and based on management and based on um, path, but, but I'm not positive. I had a kind of a question. You, you laid out a pretty good bull case um, for why we should be looking at this and why we should be interested. Just so investors know, what's kind of, in your view, what's the downside scenario, both in terms of what, what causes a downside scenario and then what does that look like for a lot of these companies? Yeah, awesome question. So the downside scenario I'd say is that this is, or some people say it's a pure commodity and, and it's going to be essentially whoever can grow the cheapest product um, wins. And, and to that, I'd say I, I consider cannabis to be more like fine wine than, than, like, than some other things. There's several different tiers of quality and, and strain and experience and product. And then the other, and so, yeah, so commodity is one thing. And also the interesting thing about federal legalization is if the border between Canada and the United States opens up as part of federal legalization, that would introduce a lot of new supply from these um, Canadian LPs that are, that are just itching to get in, into the States. Um, our, our, our politicians have hinted at the fact that they're going to make them do that via M&A and, and buying American growers and, instead of just flooding our market with, uh, with, with exports. Um, and there's only a couple of Canadian LPs that have the balance sheets to actually do that. Uh, Canopy really is the only one. Um, but those, those are the two bear cases. The, other, the third bear case, actually, um, bear cases are important too, would be, which is actually one that I don't believe in as much, is, is that these consumer packaged goods behemoths and alcohol companies just come in and do their own thing. Um, and similarly to, kind of, to, Ryan, to, to Ryan's pitch, and Oracle and Autodesk buying their way into the industry. I, I see that as being the only path of these companies really establishing a massive footprint because I mean, Green Thumb and Trueleave and several other companies are running at um, billion dollar revenue run rates with massive state footprints with, with, with hundreds and hundreds of, of licenses already in hand. And, and the federal government will always, no matter how much federal legalization, no matter how much it's opened up, there will always be a finite number of licenses and they will not just rip the licenses out of the hands of these states, state operators. So, so I, I think that the path of, of entrance is going to be through M&A for, you, we saw with Constellation buying Canopy because they can't buy Green Thumb and they can't buy Cresco because not sit on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, but I think that's the path. Okay. And then just one quick follow-up. Um, it looks like many of the companies in the CTF are growers and you've talked a lot about the growers. Um, I assume you think that that's probably the right way to kind of play this trend in this industry is why is that? Why, why should we be focused on the growers? Yeah. Another great question. Um, unsurprisingly. So the, the, well, what makes people nervous about cannabis is what I think makes it more appealing. Um, growing cannabis is very legally delicate and sensitive and expensive um, in terms of uh, hiring the lobbyists to get the licenses in place and the distribution network in place there's a lot that goes into it um, more so than uh, I guess growing, growing a vegetable or fruit that you're going to sell in a grocery store. So a lot of people like uh, what, what's that hydroponics chain um, green or, or I, I don't remember. Pro the name. generation. Pro generation. Thank you. And then IIPR. A lot of people love that. 
that play because you're not really exposed to the regulatory risks as much of cannabis, but I like being exposed to the regulatory risks because I think the deep pocketed um, CPG behemoths are, are less kind of eager to venture into that space. And it kind of almost creates an artificial moat with, um, I, I guess, kind of the taboo nature of growing cannabis still at this, at this state of our society. Not to get philosophical, but yeah. Uh, yeah that's true, Brett. Yeah. So I just have two. First one should be quick. I mean, how, how do you think about that expense ratio? I think it's 0. 0.745 or 4%. Um, it's high. Yeah. That, yeah. That's definitely a concern. And, and thank you for bringing that up too. Um, definitely something to keep in mind and, and definitely a reason that my exposure to uh, the ETF space would, would stay low because as you look at, there's not a ton of options like MSOS, but all the expense ratios are pretty, pretty elevated, um, which I kind of guess is expected because it's made up of um, higher risk, less liquid over the counter stocks. Wait, okay. what did you say it was? Sorry. Points, 0.74%. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not said, crazy, but said, it's, I said 7.4. No, like, no, 7.4. <laughs> that, that sounds a bit high, but, uh, my last one. So you mentioned that lobbying is important. Regulatory stuff, very important. Uh, we've seen Altria take a stake in Kronos group. Do you, do you look at that as a sort of a threat where they have the expertise, they're the dominant player in selling tobacco? Um, do, you know, they could potentially buy Kronos group and kind of supercharge them on their, their network. Uh, any sort of concerns there that they could win out? I don't know if they own Kronos group here because I think it's a Canadian company, but how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point to make that Kronos, um, it actually is one of the highest quality Canadian cannabis companies out there, but it still has no access to, to U.S. markets at this point in time. Um, it can't sell, it can't legally sell cannabis in the States. And the, the TAM, not, not to use that cliche, but the TAM <laughs> is actually higher um, in the States than it is in Canada, simply because the population is about 10 times the size. Uh, so, so uplisting, which means there'll be a list on the New York Stock Exchange, um, safe banking, um, interstate interstate uh, commerce, which is still illegal because because it's federally illegal. I think all those things come in the next few years before uh, that full federal legalization happens. And I don't even know if the federal, full federal legalization will even allow the Canadian um, LPs to, to export because again, these these MSOs, these multi-state operators, are, they have they have some pretty deep connections with with politicians, um, fortunately, and then they do spend a lot on lobbying. So, uh, so, so I do think that they are in the ears of the politicians on how to make this the best American, um, growth story and not just winner take all. Do you think, well, yeah, to, I guess I would argue that maybe Altria is the ultimate lobbyer or lobbyist, excuse me. Just, you know, it seems like maybe they could pull in, but I don't know, man, I'm just biased because we're on Altria. No, no, no. Altria, <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of tobacco companies, um, uh, yeah, you, you can't, you can't find, or maybe oil, I guess, but you can't find more power, powerful lobbyists. Yeah. And I guess Altria becomes a real threat and concern if, if Kronos can legally enter the, the, okay. the American markets, which, which they can, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. I do think Kronos would be, a phenomenal partner for one of these MSOs. Um, if, if safe banking happens and institutions can kind of get involved, um, with their operations, but, but yeah, just to answer your question. Okay. That makes sense. Who's next, Dan? Ian. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and hit it. So the company I'm presenting today is, um, Gettikers. 
officially, I think it's 1847 Gedeker because it had a capital infusion from, I think it's called 1847 Capital. So um, the ticker is G-O-E-D. And for full disclosure, I have, a, I started a small position in it kind of to keep an eye on it about a month ago, um, less than 1% of my portfolio, but something that I'm looking to add to in the near future. Hopefully I'll, I'm going to, I'll keep you updated on exactly um, what I do, but, and I'll get into why I haven't added more to it yet, but it's about a $55 million company. That's million with an M. Um, so micro cap, really small. What they do is they sell kitchen appliances mostly online. And so they tout themselves as one of three pure play online um, appliance dealers, basically. And so you can go on there, you can buy a new dishwasher, you can buy a new stove, you can buy a new oven, microwave, um, even washers and dryers for your laundry room. So that type of stuff is what they specialize in. I think they sell a little bit of furniture on there as well. But the reason it's appealing to me, they're the only publicly traded company out of these three pure play uh, distributors. And they kind of make a good case for that people um, want this. That basically, if you go to your local appliance dealer, they're commission-based. They're going to be charging higher prices than what you can get on Gettikers. And if you go to like a big box retailer, like somewhere like Home Depot or Lowe's, they don't have the selection or the quality that you're looking for necessarily. And so this has, it's kind of the Amazon um, effect back when Amazon was in the early days of books of having more inventory at a lower price. They're really trying to replicate the same thing, but with these bigger items. And that's a key to why this is kind of an interesting space is it's kind of like the Wayfair thing where Amazon didn't necessarily want to get into um, furniture because it's big, it's bulky, it's harder to ship. It's, and it needs to be, it's more special, specialized shipping. And so you run into the same thing with Gettikers that it's both the relationships with the appliance manufacturers that are important. And it's also difficult to ship. And when you ship out an appliance, you generally have an existing appliance in your house. And so you're going to want to get rid of that existing oven you have and replace it with a new oven. And so part of their shipping is actually shipping, installing, and removing your existing um, appliances if you want that. And so they kind of make, it, it becomes, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's an overused term, but it's a little bit Amazon proof in that sense is that it's difficult enough that it doesn't make sense for someone who's selling all sorts of things to also be doing this. They don't want to put a, a dishwasher in the Amazon Prime truck to and have their guys install it, right? They just want to drop it off on your front door. And so Gettikers has a little bit of an advantage there. Wait, they did so, it out. Oh, go ahead. Uh, so I'm, I missed the last part. So someone, whoever delivers it comes in and then does the installation as well? That's correct. They okay. do, they, um, that's kind of one of their competitive advantages against more traditional e-commerce stores is they can, they can uh, have people who are specialized in, in uh, installing these. And so, what happens is they actually have a few distribution centers around the country. Um, they have a fleet of their own trucks and drivers. And so that provides a little bit of infrastructure, makes it a little asset heavier, but it provides that infrastructure where they can um, try and ship them out efficiently. So I'll give a couple of recent updates now. So one recent update is I mentioned there were three pure play companies like this. Gettikers is the only one that's publicly listed, but they bought out their large arrival Um appliances connections, which did about $150 million in revenue last year, I believe. And so it's two to three times, you know, three times as big as Gettikers, but they're buying them. Um, there's been a little bit of interesting stuff with the deal where it's about a $200 million 
uh, $215 million deal, I think. And they haven't announced how they're going to finance it. They don't have enough cash to do it. They don't have enough debt to do it. Like I said, they have this capital partner who I assume is going to try and raise the money to do it. But um, it's it's not announced exactly how that's going to happen. And that's the reason I haven't invested more yet. I want to see how the capital structure works out. I want to make sure they don't load themselves up with too much high interest debt or anything like that. Um, and that's something to keep an eye on. And they said that they were going to announce that back in December at some point. They kind of made some they didn't officially say that, but in the conference calls, they said, oh yeah, in the next couple of weeks, we'll announce how we're financing it. Yeah, I and saw that. that. Didn't happen. Oh, go ahead. I said, I saw that, that I was going to, that was going to be my question that the financing <laughs> hasn't really come through yet. Yeah. The financing has not come through yet. They revised the deal terms um, fairly recently as well. And so there's just a couple, like they're not red flags, but there's just a couple of yellow flags that I kind of want to keep an eye on, see exactly what's going on. They've announced some pretty impressive numbers um, going forward, but uh, kind of in the last couple of months that both the companies are doing. And so they seem to still be excited about the deal and trying to work towards a resolution, but it hasn't all the terms haven't quite come together yet. And so I want to see, like I said, how it's financed. The other recent update I'll give quickly is um, they typically convert about 80% of their orders into revenue. And so um, they report both numbers and basically an order is when someone goes on there, they click it, they say, this is what I want to buy. But then there's generally a little bit of a lead time where it takes, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, occasionally a couple of months to actually ship it out to them. And in that time, people can request a refund. And so typically about 80% of those orders actually turn into revenue. Over the past over the past year, it was way lower than that. I want to say, I'm blanking on the exact number right now, but I want to say it was around like 30%, 35% of orders were converted into revenue, largely because of supply issues with manufacturers. And so and that was a problem across the industry that many people in the industry were having trouble actually getting enough appliances out there. But um, anyways, so that's something to keep in mind. They've been reporting recently. They've been putting out some press releases about how much orders are up. That doesn't just keep in mind that doesn't necessarily translate into revenue. And so in 2021, you're going to want to keep an eye on how well are they converting orders into revenue? Because if they can get that back up to 80% or so, then it should be a great business. But if it's going to be, you know, stick closer to that 35, 40, 45%, it's going to be a little bit of a problem. Okay. Is that it? We are going on to questions now, Brad, we want to start off. Sure. Do you, do you think the semiconductor shortage that's kind of hurting the automakers and and some other industries, do you view that as, um, as a, a headwind for them or not really? That's an interesting question. I don't think that many of their, um, I don't think it's semiconductor specific that's really hurting the industry. It's more of just, uh, like I said, many of the manufacturers are having trouble, you know, many of those supply chains were focused in China. And so just having manufacturing anything has been a little bit of, of an issue for many of these types of things. So um, they've made some comments that they think it's rebounding some and starting to kind of pick back up. They're having, they're being able to get stuff a little bit quicker than they were in 2020. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 more of a manufacturing a whole thing, less of a. I haven't seen anything about uh, the semiconductors in particular. Got it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, this is kind of not. I mean, you kind of covered this, but do you worry that this is a part of e or commerce? I guess that won't go to e-commerce at all. Yeah, because like as the consumer, I picture if I'm buying a huge appliance, I'm just gonna go to a store 
Uh, if I'm buying a small appliance, like a, I don't know if they sell these, but like toasters or like smaller microwaves, um, I'll go and do it on Amazon. Um, does that worry you at all? Or is that kind of me reaching for a... No, it's, it's a fair point. Um, I think the comp that I like to draw, and we always have to be careful because no two companies are exactly the same, but I think Wayfair is a pretty good example of a company that has done what Getikers is now trying to do. An item that's a little bit more of a bulky item, a little bit harder to ship, not something that Amazon's super focused on. Um, and they're doing, in the 2020 Wayfair did 14 billion, or sorry, 14, yeah, $14 billion um, in revenue. And so a pretty impressive revenue number. Um, Getikers is about 50 million right now after the acquisition will be somewhere closer to 200, 250 million um, in revenue. They think that they can hit a billion dollars in revenue in three years after this acquisition. So um, pretty aggressive growth, you know, that's almost hundred percent growth year over year for the next three years. Um, but, uh, they think that the market's there and it's a matter of capitalizing on it. And the other thing I'll mention briefly is they're starting traditionally, they've been selling straight to like consumers to end users, but they're starting to try and create relationships, um, with some like apartment uh, builders and, mm. uh, home builders and say like, Hey, we'll do this entire subdivision for you. Um, we'll give you a little better rate. And then that just does a lot of volume for them and helps with some of those delivery costs. They don't have to do as much installation and those types of things either. I would assume because, you know, it's, they're going to construction sites. So, um, or, you know, nearly finished homes. So, uh, Anyways, that's kind of an interesting, like they just started talking about that recently that they're going to try and move into that more. And it's kind of an interesting way to play. There's a lot of talk about the, the uh, move to the suburbs and I'm looking at some of the home builders because of, um, you know, there's a lot of, there, there's not a lot of housing supply. And so this is kind of an interesting way to get at that trend too, is actually there's going to be someone who's supplying most of these, uh, most of these appliances. And if they can somehow take a little piece of that market, that'll be interesting too. Right. So you think the the key competitive advantage or the reason that Getaker can win is that they do this. They don't necessarily have a streamlined option for everything like an Amazon or even similarly a Wayfair where they're going to specifically make it so this process is easier. You know, installing these appliances is not something a lot of people want to do on their own. If they can get, you know, the old one out or if it's just a new one, get the new one in that is really how they're going to win where they can make this, you know, the appliance, it seems like purchasing appliances, large ones like refrigerators or ovens or something like that is a hard process. Is their goal to necessarily like make it easier for the consumer and that's how they're going to win them over or do they not talk about that? No, they do talk about that. And I think that's, that's a pretty good um, way to put it. I think they want to make it easier for the consumer. And ideally, this hasn't happened in the last year, but ideally they'd like to make it faster. That you can have a wide selection. It can be at your house within a week or two, because that's been a big problem with a lot of these types of appliances. You try and order an appliance like this and it takes forever to get it. And so um, if they can make that easier and faster, that's really how they're going to be successful. Okay. And any thoughts on management or? Management uh, I'll make a quick comment on that. So insider ownership is a, over 50%. And so very high insider ownership. Part of that's from the biggest shareholder is this capital partner that came in 1847. Um, and the, 
that's where the chairman of the board is from. Um, and so he is definitely someone who seems to be fairly in, uh, important to the company. Um, they brought in more of a professional CEO. This had traditionally been a more family business. They brought in a professional CEO in the last year or two. Um, I can't remember the exact date on that. Was he the guy on the YouTube video? Yes, he was. The hostage YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have an interesting kind of investor presentation in the video format, which was kind of, it was cool actually getting to hear management speak about it a little bit, but it is a little bit funny to to be pitched to the company by management. But that's the stage this company is at. They, they're worth $55 million. They need to uh, raise some capital. The more, the higher their stock price is, the easier it is to make this acquisition and some other stuff. So um Anyways, interesting company, but yeah, no, no big red flags for me on management or anything like that. All right, okay. Brett, go ahead. Yeah, we'll wrap things up with IntelliCheck. Um, I guess ticker is IDN. Uh, if anyone wants to know, uh, I'll probably go over valuation last, but it's a little bit confusing, so I'll try to explain it. So they are a they verify using their software in person and online identity identities. And they're, they work with businesses, specifically financial institutions and retailers to address fraud. And they also work with law enforcement. So the easiest, I guess, um, example is fake IDs for law enforcement. Now this is a smaller part of their business. So it's not necessarily how they make the most money, but you can understand where, you know, they, the police officers or law enforcement, they can't just look at a fake ID. You know, the ones that they make now are a lot better where you just hold them up, they look the exact same. But IntelliJ has the technology to have a 99% success rate of identifying whether, you know, this ID is actually real. And the reason that they have this and why they have a competitive advantage over other uh you know, security or identification people, which I guess a public one would be Matek Systems, if people have heard about that before. So Matek Systems and the other ones reportedly have about a 65 to 80% success rate, but IntelliCheck actually has a 99% success rate. So it's a lot bigger. And the reason they have that is they, one, about 20 years ago, they had a relationship with the Department of Defense for working on identity checks on military bases. So they gave them a little bit of information there. They work with them as a partner. I don't know if that relationship is still going on, but they currently have a relationship with the DMV and there's an association that works with the DMV throughout Mexico, United States, and Canada, where when there's new licenses, they're the ones that kind of test it out. So they have all that information and that allows them to actually check through the barcodes, the technology. I honestly don't know how it works. And it's, it's kind of a little bit of a black box there, but they are able to check that like legitly where if you look at another competitor, they're kind of just looking at where the, you know, the lighting, the kind of those glare things behind them, but IntelliJet can actually do it where it's legit and it's not, is this making sense? Ryan? Yeah. I'm oh, just picturing like the bartender, like squeezing your license. You know, yes. So they're trying to bring that type of stuff to the 21st century. And the way they do this is first where they're working at say a retail, a retailer. So, any retailer, someone's signing up for say a account or a credit card, credit card or something like that. They want to uh, verify that's the person that's using it. So they, a lot of the times there's, and companies are losing, and it's mainly financial institutions are losing billions and billions of dollars each year to this, where they're faking these accounts and then, you know, using the credit card or whatever, they're able to insert and it's hard to explain, inserts IntelliTech's technology within their barcode scanner. So when they sign these people up, 
all it takes is like 10, 20, maybe 30 seconds to route the information to IntelliCheck. They verify that it's that person. And then they're, they're able to sign them up with, again, a 99% success rate. So they're able to help eliminate the fraud. And they also do this for person not present transactions where their new technology is. So say, okay, you're with your bank account or something like that, where you have to call them up and give them information, right? A lot of the times people that are trying to do, I don't know, you know, steal stuff from someone's bank account, mm. they are going to just basically, you know, you social security numbers can be found on the internet. They'll take them and they'll hack them. But the way IntelliCheck does it is one, you have to take a picture of the person's ID and then you have to take a short video of yourself and they're able to verify through their, you know, database and their partnership with the DMV that that person is actually the one using that. So they're able to help that. They work with the financial institutions. Um, if you have any other questions, maybe we can go through it, but I'll hit the valuation. So they're not designed first. for like restaurants or bars. They're more so, for like auto dealers or banks. Yeah. So law enforcement uses them, but mainly they sell to banks who sell to retailers who are, you know, credit card partners. So they want to be with every financial institution. Okay. Uh, so, you know, retailers don't necessarily care because the, the people that are on the hook are the banks. So they, they've switched before new management came in. Uh, they were, were trying to sell to the retailers, but again, you know, retailers are on the hook. So they're trying to, you know, get the banks to work with them and get the product out there. Right. What, what I'm, it's not as much when you say like, you're trying to identify fake IDs. It's yeah. not as much, it's more for the financial risk. It's not for like, Oh yeah. Yes. Like, yes. is this person 21 or older? Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. So that, yeah, that is true. The majority of their business is that the, the one, the first, the financial yeah. stuff, they do have that product, but again, it's, it's a really small part. Um, and I guess valuation a little pricey price sales about 15.7, but gross margins are around 90%. They said conservatively it'll be 85%, but they've been a lot higher recently. Um, they're operating cash flow break even. Uh, so they're, you know, the share dilution might be there as they try to grow, they're growing their sales team, but yeah, I think it's a high margin business. I really think they have that competitive advantage with the, they're the only ones out there that can get a 99% success rate. And there's a long runway for growth where they can address this throughout basically anyone who's, you know, starting up an account and is at risk of uh, financial fraud. All right. Questions, uh, Brad or Ian, you guys want to go first? I can go first. Um, and this could be a dumb question because I don't know the technology or the space very well, but I will give it a go anyway. Um, so how, how do you think dual authentication kind of, I guess, limits um, this company's value proposition? Is, is dual authentication a less secure version of this kind of? Is that a good way to think about it? Uh, yeah. So for, you know, Okta, you're probably, you're probably talking about them, right? Where that sign-on stuff is not for it's for stuff that's less important. So yeah, IntelliJack isn't going to be for signing onto applications, but for things where there's risk of uh, incredible amounts of fraud, for example, when someone signs up for an auto loan, if they, a lot of the times say, and it's not the mob, it's just criminal crime rings or whatever. They have, there's a huge, uh, I forget the numbers they have, but it, some of them are over 10 billion. It's at least a billion for all the different products where single sign-on is not going to do much. You have to verify that the person holding the ID is real and you have to verify that the person on the ID is actually that person. And IntelliCheck's the only one that can do it with a 99% success rate. 
Um, so I think, yes, you know, they're not doing single sign on anything like that, but, uh, Okta or whomever is not going to really, there's no way for them to address this, the problem that they're going after. How, how, how do they grow? So they're only in, I believe, uh, I think there's 10 large banks that they address and there's Amex and Discover. So like Visa and MasterCard don't count because they're not really issuing uh, credit cards, but they're only in five right now. And they honestly have a lot of different products that they can upsell to them because they have not everyone using them. And then the banks themselves, again, can work with other retailers. Uh, okay. So they're only in five banks and I think there's 12 different financial institutions that they're trying to go after. So they still can really go after them. And I, I think they have a lot of pricing power as well, where right now they don't give it out, but they do a minimum with like a, a financial institution where you pay a minimum per month or per quarter or something like that. And then you it's pay all per, per use, right? Transaction. Yeah. So it's a minimum plus a per use. So there's a minimum you have to pay, but if you have no, you know, if you have no scans, Mm. then you still pay the minimum, but then you pay after that threshold, a, a per scan. And I believe it's like 20 cents, it's like uh, a, but they don't, like a, they don't give it out. It's like an API. E, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a bit hard to describe over um, audio, just talking about it. But yes, it's similar to that where I think the value they're providing, uh, the pricing power, I, I think is really, really strong, especially if, again, I think the key is that relationship with the DMV and all that stuff where they're the only ones that can do 99% success rate. If they have that, the, the ability to raise prices is, I think, substantial. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ian? Yeah, and I was just going to ask, I think it, it looks like it's about a $170 million company. Um, is this the type of company you think, I know we were talking about Okta earlier, but Okta or another similar type of company might acquire? Um, seems like, you know, not not super expensive at this point, 15 times sales, but many of those companies are trading at greater than 15 times sales. And it looks like, at least to me, the cross-selling opportunities for something like IntelliCheck might, um, it, not for all of Okta's customers, but I have to imagine that there's a portion of like Okta's customers that would also like a higher security option with something like IntelliCheck. Um, for some of their offerings. And so do you see this as a potential acquisition target or do you think this one's going to ride it out on its own for a long time? Uh, management has talked about it. Uh, the guy that runs it seems to be kind of like a guy that really wants to take it to the end or whatever, but he has actually mentioned on one of the, they had a really, um, the, there was a lot of candor at this like fireside chat. They had at one of these conferences over Zoom where he talked about how they are definitely an acquisition candidate. He didn't, he didn't name names, but I think that does leave a floor if, you know, again, if they struggle to grow, um, there, there's other products out there that are not as good, but if the bigger companies like the tech systems can market their products better and the switching costs are fairly high, um, then I think an acquisition, I think an acquisition does, you know, it, it is a floor there and there's a potential to, for a buyout at a, at a premium for sure. Yeah, How so you're looking at this as you're looking at this as more of a that an acquisition should give investors a more of a sense of security rather than what they're planning on for the return. Yeah, right. I mean, I I have only looked at this for about a, for a few weeks, so I'm not like 100% in or out on this company yet. But yeah, the market opportunity seems a lot stronger than a short-term buyout. Um, let's see. Yeah, I'm trying to give some numbers, but there, there's a lot out there. I'd read their that fireside chat to kind of understand where. And another thing is that these 
competitors, they have to sell custom hardware to these retail centers. And they can cost like a few hundred bucks where IntelliCheck integrates into your, uh, your scanning hardware like itself. So all you do is, uh, however they do it, just set, upload the code or whatever as a uh, non-techies will talk about that. But they basically have no extra hardware that you need. And they have that 99% success rate. So I may be trying to look at this through rose colored glasses, but it seems like there's not a strong, not a way that a competitor could come in and disrupt them. Okay. All right. What, uh, what was your favorite today? My favorite, favorite I like, stock that wasn't yours. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll go first. I like Brad's Brad, your pitch was you're good. Yeah. Cause I am very, I'm very uh, skeptical about marijuana, but all that stuff, uh, the catalyst cannabis, they, not marijuana, not always cannabis. cannabis. Uh, <laughs> that stuff made a lot of sense. <laughs> Ian, what about you? Favorite? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with IntelliCheck. Um, I'm right. intrigued. I'm going to take a deeper look. It's, uh, you know, I think Brett, you made a good pitch, and I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. All right, yeah, small caps right up your alley. So, Brad. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going to go with Ryan's. Uh, I had a chance to look at a, a large chunk of the S1, and it looks. I don't know. It looks pretty darn interesting. All right. Well, I guess we you, just go round table. I liked eighteen forty seven Gettikers. Yeah, so. we all have to be nice and pick each other. So. <laughs> I mean, if uh, I see what happens with that finance, I would like to see how they finance that deal. But I like the uh, the proposition that the business serves. I like that area. Yeah, I like. I think they have. It's a niche that's underserved. I agree. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's gonna do it. Thank you guys for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Fun. Fun show today. Yeah, always a good time. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. Uh, we are moving to our stories. I don't have one. So what is yours? You yeah, so we'll, kick, we'll kick up this one. Not too much to talk about, but I thought it was interesting. Going to be a few discussion questions about this. So Canadian Pacific Railway is buying Kansas City Southern. Now, if you're some sort of... I don't know. I don't want to stereotype anyone, but like the tech investors, the high growth people, you might roll your eyes at this and think, all right, well, this is boring. These businesses don't make sense. But it sounds like a headline from the 40s. Yes. But look at the performance of some of these companies and those will get you excited about investing in these businesses, even though they are boring. And to be honest, we have we have looked at the railroad industry. So we don't know how the industry works much at all. We've looked at it probably i don't know once or twice i've never never you'd never looked at it so <laughs> then we talked about it with lawrence hamtill we did we did and he's right the that that's it's right up his alley but i just i don't know what i'm trying to say here is that boring businesses an, sexy returns yeah it's one of those underfollowed businesses by the majority of investors that are just putting up great returns with good capital allocation but yeah canadian pacific they're buying kansas city southern in a stock and cash deal at an enterprise value of about $29 billion, Canadian Pacific is taking on $3.8 billion in Kansas City Southern debt. The rationale is the combined companies will create the first railway connecting Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So if you look at the map they have on the combined map there, it is about 
So Canadian Pacific, as you might guess, runs through kind of an uh, west to east or east to west through the Canadian border, kind of through Chicago and then to the northeast, and then it goes down to about Kansas City. Kansas City Southern starts at about Kansas City, moves through Texas, a little bit into the southeast, and then through Mexico. So the rationale is to connect Canada, U.S., and Mexico, create a nice route there through the middle of the country, and connecting you know, the two countries to our north and our south. Uh, Canadian Pacific is issuing about 440, or no, 44.5 million shares and $8.6 billion in debt to fund the acquisition. KCS, uh, Kansas City Southern, shareholders will own around 25% of the combined company, but they're also getting cash as well. The combined company will have about a four times leverage ratio and estimates are that it will generate about $7 billion in leverage free cash flow over the next three years. So it's going to take a few years to pay down that debt. That's basically the acquisition at its whole um, initial thoughts. Uh, why do we think, you know, the railroad business is so unloved? Because uh, of that, that ARC video. The ARC video. Yeah, that one really. It makes no sense. The returns have been really impressive. Yeah. Um, but it feels like uh, to typical investors today, it probably feels like an industry that hit maturity 100 years ago. Yeah, which is weird is that they were terrible investments 100 years ago because they were high tech, but now everything's kind of laid out. There's so much capital invested into it. It's, it's weird. It's not something you would have thought, all right, year 2000, this is going to basically crush all, almost all other investments, and, and it did. I don't know what, I mean, a lot of people know more about what actually happened within the industry, but their profit margins just soared. Um, maybe it is that they're so unloved by people like us. I don't know. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's not sexy. It's not fun to, you know, it's not fun to read about unless yeah, you love returns. Yeah, because you, <laughs> that's true. And at first you kind of just throw it aside, but then if you just, if you think about the dynamics in the industry for a few seconds, you're like, oh, right, this does make sense why they're just printing cash now. It's so hard to disrupt, and it makes sense why uh, I guess Berkshire bought the BNSF in 2011. But what industries do you think, like railroads, kind of went from or can go from irrational to rational now? Easy ones I have here that I probably stole from you. You have cable, so telecom, stuff like that, you know, fiber optic, broadband, cell towers. They probably overbuilt, and I think they did overbuild, but now they're getting you know, kind of rationalized in this industry that, that people argue and there's so much invested capital that it's really hard to disrupt unless you want to spend billions and billions of dollars. I kind of thought that, you know, you could argue logistics was one of them and you probably have an idea that maybe UPS and FedEx were, but then Amazon came in and decided that, yeah, we're going to invest all this money to disrupt. And do you have any thoughts on those or any Logistics other? is a big one. Uh, and It seems similar, but it, it, Amazon's kind of taking it over. Yeah, but what about XPO Logistics? They've done well, mm. haven't they? I mean, yeah, they're Amazon small. doesn't do logistics for everyone, That's right? Uh, I mean, I don't know the logistics business well enough. Like, like we're saying here, it's an unsexy industry, but it does feel like something that yeah, e-com- it's the plumbing of e-commerce. Yeah, and it almost feels like it's in that mode where it's kind of it's been a you know it it feels ra- like it was rational maybe in the eighties and nineties with UPS and FedEx, right? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of in a phase where it's in maybe an irrational phase possibly moving back to rational who knows because it seems like there's a lot of variables at the moment and that is, is whatever you know amazon's investing tens of billions into their their network each year there's a lot of things that they could choose to do um that could and we know that they're big op- you know my margin is my opportunity that's kind of their or sorry your mantra. margin is my opportunity that's their mantra 
Um, anything else? Hold on. You I'm thought pulling, I'm you pulling up XBO Logistics stock. The CMG. Okay. Yeah. Oh, they've. I think they've. Uh, I think they've done well. Uh, to be honest, I don't know though. But I think the the easiest comparison has got to be cable. Right? It's up like two hundred percent this year. Two hundred percent this year. Well, what about long term? Long term. Yeah. Wait. That includes March. Uh, long term. Yeah. Like uh, five years. Uh, it was at twenty nine dollars. It's at a hundred. 22 now oh yeah that's well i mean it's it's not sexy but it has generates good returns yeah the yeah i guess i guess it I had a fall off maybe it had a uh maybe it had that amazon scare like ups and fedex um i just think there's a lot more commerce to go around than what amazon brings to the table and that's maybe true. they're doing it for a lot more businesses than i'm imagining um yeah well i think I another know. thing that people should consider so we might put this is a whole nother topic, but a lot of people, their bull case on maybe Shopify or DoorDash is that they're going to disrupt and invest in the last mile logistics or whatever that is. You know what I mean? They're going to try to disrupt that, but none of them are investing near as amount as UPS, FedEx, or Amazon. I just don't see how Shopify is investing maybe a billion, maybe two billion, and Amazon's investing like at least 10 billion a year. It feels like that, you know, yeah. what, I, you know what I mean? I don't know. It, there's just there are a lot of uh, e-commerce brands that are sort of bringing a lot of stuff in house. That's true. I this gets back to the mailman's edge. You know, uh, <laughs> we wrote about this a long time ago, or someone wrote about it. There was a mailman that had some Reddit post, and he's like, "I see, I saw Etsy boxes. I saw a whole lot of them early on. Bought. I saw Amazon boxes early he on. Saw, bought. He saw Poshmark, right? Or pot, Poshmark. Like, he said, Poshmark. and now I'm incredibly bullish on Poshmark or Poshmark." Um, so there's that mailman's edge. Maybe they, uh, yeah. maybe th- we got to get a mailman on the show. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll reach out. We'll, uh, but All right, what about, question. what about, okay. What about the cable industry? This one seems the most similar mm. to railroads because one, there's the telecom boom and bust in around year 2000 or 2001, right? Railroads have a long history in the 1800s and early 1900s of being, you know, incredibly like important business businesses but really overbuilt and now we're getting and it's in it's a compressed timeline it seems like now we're getting to the rational part of the cable industry where these might be good businesses now and i think people identified that probably back in you know 2011 2012 and it was probably you know early on that but yeah. you know things like charter even comcast although they're a conglomerate i don't know Altice, 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 yeah i don't know we got to have Francisco back on. Yeah, these are all industries. Anyone an expert in these industries is probably like, oh, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. That is true. We don't know anything about these industries, but I do think they're interesting. And it's something that any investor that's looking to broaden their horizons, these are industries you can understand. Yeah. But you just got to put it at the time. All right, I'll go to the next question. Does this make you more interested in Mexico at all? Now, there's a lot of potential catalysts that could help them, you know, moving away from China. Yeah, the partnerships across, and then now this railroad. No one ever talks about Mexican markets, and it's surprising to me. Um, and I haven't looked them up at all. I follow Aaron Edelheit on Twitter. He's, he's basically the inspiration here yeah, for me. Yeah, and yeah, maybe it's something worth diving into, but I don't have enough uh, knowledge yeah, on it. There's going to be. I, I want to. I want to take some Mexican ETF because a railroad starts to travel in there. That's true. That's true. I, there's prob- there's a big learning curve, but I think, it's, again, it's a market that an American investor could understand a lot better than, I don't know, yeah. a Southeast Asian market. All right. 
Last one before we move on. Uh, we also have this funny thing, though, at the end. Uh, does this solidify the BNSF purchase as a top five Berkshire investment of all time? So, for example, so the combined companies here are going to have an enterprise value, I think, just doing a little bit of, in my head, math, probably around $100 billion enterprise value. And now the combined CP, or Canadian Pacific, Kansas City Railroad, will have, or Kansas City Southern, excuse me, will have 20,000 miles of lines. BNSF, which is under Berkshire Hathaway, has over 32,000 lines or railroad lines. I don't, You know what I mean, right? Yeah. Miles. Miles. Oh, wait, railroad. sorry. I'm not saying miles. 32,000 miles of lines. Canadian Railroads. Pacific. Don't say lines. It sounds like... Uh, like <laughs> it sounds like drugs. Well, that's how they describe it. Uh, I can't remember what the term is, but they have 32,000 miles versus Kansas. Canadian Pacific and Kansas City will have 20,000 I mean, that's... They How bought much did that. they buy BNSF for? I believe $38 billion, uh, and I think that's going to be doing pretty well for a long time. Yeah. And that's I, the... This seems like... Yeah, it seems like Buffett would be all over this kind of... Uh, feels like he would finance this deal. It kind of oh, feels like yeah. Rockefeller would finance this deal, <laughs> but... The... Uh, yeah, that's true, if it was back in 1900. But the... I think the BNSF, it might go down as, you know, there's Gen Re, there's Geico. Apple. Seize Candy, Apple, Coke. I think it's better than most of those. Or it will end up being better. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But, but Geico? Wait, you're missing Geico? I said Geico. Oh, I just stuck okay. it in there. But uh, our friend Alex of the Science of Hitting said someone was like, you know, there's a big conversation about railroads and stuff. Uh, about how they're actually done super well and that, you know, they're even more carbon efficient than trucking. So it's a better option for a lot of people if they can use them. But uh, he responded to Barry Schwartz, who's pretty good uh, on Twitter, and he said, you fail to consider that autonomous Teslas will likely haul about 95% of all bulk commodities in North America within 36 to 48 months. (laughs) Well, that leads right into my hot water. Um, oh, the, are, are you? I assumed you had this. I was gonna. Yeah, hold on. All right, all right. You're done. That's good. that's it. That's okay. it. Yeah, yeah. So the, I'll yeah, I'll take the Ark Invest new price target for mm-hmm. Tesla as my hot water. Um, and you know what? We're in maybe we're in hot water because last time we were wrong. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Their est- first of all, their estimates on everything was wrong except the stock price. Yeah, their yeah so, their estimates were so yeah. I mean. Their numbers were. If totally they wrong. predicted multiple expansion, that'd be one thing. But <laughs> yeah, the they, business is going to be in a worse shape, but the multiple expansion will be there. All right, fine. But yeah, I'd be okay with that. But anyway, they expect the company to be worth approximately three point six trillion by twenty twenty five, without that, share dilution. Without share dilution, yes. Uh, that market cap is equivalent to approximately approximately twenty percent of U.S. GDP this year. Um, does that make sense to you? Well, you're not factoring the moon's GDP. No, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. What was the most audacious or strange thing you saw? The the insurance. The insurance thing is, I mean, I don't know that much about the insurance industry. I try to understand because I'm a fan of Buffett. Chris Bloomstrand, someone that we respect a lot, was on Twitter, basically dissected this. And it was, the insurance thing was so ridiculous that it's it's unbelievable that they don't have like their CFA charter pulled. I don't know. It's so, <laughs> it's crazy. It's, if you're like, 
And then someone, uh, there's a funny tweet. Do you like do you like understanding the insurance industry or do you like making money? A little shout out to uh, uh... shout out to old Peru Saxena. But <laughs> the I mean, you know my take. It's the most ridiculous. Yeah. It's the most ridiculous thing ever. I I mean I don't know. What were your thoughts? But the thing is, she could be right with enough multiple expansion from here. Sure. If I think it, every part of the analysis in terms of the estimating like the revenue that comes in from each part of the business, I think all those will be wrong, but she could still be right on the stock price. Sure. Infinite, yeah, infinite margin expansion. It's um infinite margin calls. Infinite I mean, margin expansion. <laughs> margin expansion. Uh, all right. Oh, no, what's the the funniest thing is that okay, they they their share count was lower than the fully diluted share count right now. And that's not putting in that at that stock level. Well, all of Elon Musk's would. It's going to be a buyback machine. Yeah, it'll be such a buyback machine. But the the, the I think their fully diluted share count is like 1.1 billion. I could totally have that wrong, but it's a lot lower or higher, excuse me, than their average weighted outstanding. Uh, but if you assume that stock's going to stay high, all those will exercise. And they have it at like 1 billion. And then they have their working capital flatlined when they're going to 10x their manufacturing capacity. I mean, it's just. I don't know. They're living in a dream world, but who knows? The dream world might last. And, you know, t- uh, 20x overvalued is no different than 50x overvalued. <laughs> it's Talk all to, the same if, at this point. If David, Einhorn, if David Einhorn could see 1999 and push it to now, I don't know. He would be. Like, if you said that there were any, there would be. Okay. I wasn't there in 1999, but this feels like if Palm Pilot became the number one, the biggest stock in the market. It's yeah. like it, would get, it became bigger than Microsoft. Yeah, you're gonna get hate for that take, but anyway. Well, um, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I assume the I assume the Tesla bulls. You're gone by now. You're a long gone. Time ago. Yeah, you're gone by now. You'll be okay. back though. You'll Common sense is in hot water this week as well. Last week, a New York City man sold a fart uh, as an NFT for eighty five dollars. <laughs> if this is a bubble, which I'm not sure how it would not be. Um, <laughs> yeah. Imagine looking back at this from a hundred, like a hundred years from now, and thinking, how could they not tell? No, I mean, yeah, it's clear that it's clear. I don't. There's some interesting things that if you could get some ownership in businesses, um, you know, that kind of stuff, decentralized no, ownership and like, uh, you know, like, you know, stuff like that. It's really inefficient when the, I was trying to read up on it and kind of, you know, all right, just embrace it, read up how this stuff works. No, I'm not talking NFTs. That's obviously ridiculous. But if you can attach ownership to a business kind of through this process, you know, and you have a stake on the cash flows, kind of like ownership in a stock, which... Why not just make it a stock? But uh, <laughs> you're it, it, explaining the stock market. I know, but it's supposedly now a lot of this ends up just talking in circles, and you're just like, well, it's better because it's on the blockchain, ha. Huh. But the it gives you like full the the shareholders more autonomy. But honestly, when you're running a company, wow. you kind of want it to be a democratic republic where the shareholders can keep people in line and the board of directors can keep the you know executives in line. But you really want a few people or one person or an executive team to have a vision and go after it. You don't want thousands and thousands of people. I don't know. I could be talking. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we're going to look I don't understand what you're saying, but what's your hot water for? No, no. Like, I kind of get it. But So it's like it gives you more ownership, but... It sounds like you're explaining a stock on the uh, blockchain. Yeah. To be Either... I understand it, and it's really not that special. Or I there's parts of this I'm not getting, but yeah, it. I was trying to read up on it and how something like that would work, and I don't know. It doesn't seem that different, but it's yeah. on the blockchain, so don't worry. 
it's worth more that way. All right, guess, what do you have? I guess. Uh, okay, Leon Black. So, do you know who that is? No. You ever heard of Apollo, the PE giant? Private equity giant? Uh, I've heard the name. Yeah, so he's the founder there, and he is stepping down from Apollo management completely. So he retired uh, a few months ago, I think, and he was going to be the chairman of the board. But now he is leaving completely, and at the same time, we're kind of in a timeline where it came out that he had paid Jeffrey Epstein, yes, that Jeffrey Epstein that you're thinking of, $150 million for, quote, tax consulting so put two and two together i think no one needs to really have some einstein level iq to understand there's something going on there and i will be it'll be exciting fascinating to what comes after this that's the one thing that like no one uh you people are ardent defenders of anyone until you tag them in the same sentence as jeffrey epstein yeah musk is a big one like yeah people hate to admit it that they were tied together. Yeah. No, no, it's cool, though. It's cool. No, it was fine. No, no Elon Musk could get... Dude, he's... Dude. He's, I guess a lot of people probably encountered Epstein during the, you know, yeah, his life. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no need to make... Yeah. But this uh, Leon Black stuff, I mean, the $150 million, okay. Like, yeah. all right, what's going on there? All right, next. Next one, Root Insurance. I know oh, a lot of smart people I know. I think... I don't... I'm not going to say any names, but I've seen a lot of people kind of bullish on this company. Uh, but Edwin Dorsey, stock jabber, very good. Uh, he's not a short seller, but he's kind of uh, trying to uh, be kind of one of those, you know, not not like local kind of, critics. Yeah, or trying to he's trying to expose frauds and stuff like that to help short sellers and just the market in general. So pretty noble thing, I think. Although he probably gets a lot of flack, but you know. Yeah. Got to have tough skin there. But he's the thread, and I assume it was under his newsletter, too, that Root Insurance has been raising rates on customers for no reason, and the average amount of complaints are off the charts. It's like four times the national average if they did some aggregate of, like, the level of claims they have – or, sorry, level of insured people or customers they have versus the number of complaints. It, it seems like these AI – machine learning like insurance fintech lending stuff it, it, i don't know i can't get around those things what do you think yeah i i'm always hesitant whenever the company's edge or competitive advantage is ai or machine learning because it feels like you can just someone could replicate mask it. like masquerade yeah a business by using that as it, the terminology in your 10k like what goes on in the back end? Don't worry about it. It's AI. Yeah, no, especially if that's like your first thing under like what the business does under the 10K. It's like we're AI. It's like, okay, you think Geico's not doing this? I, I honestly, I read this stuff and I think Geico is going to do just fine. They're going to be the low, they're the lowest cost and progressive and whoever too. Like everyone's going to compete on low cost and they're going to, yeah, I mean, they just, it, it feels very hard to. I mean, what kind of data are they have? Do they have that's gonna like give them such a big edge that it just totally disrupts this thing? I mean, these companies have been aggregating data for centuries—not centuries, not centuries I, I decades. Don't, you know? I don't know enough about root insurance. I though. think it's a car insurance. Yeah, they could be doing something totally different. But if they're raising rates, if their rates are higher, then what customers are 
mm. supposed to get. Like, if you have higher rates, Wait, what's like the premiums point? or no? Like they made them. Uh, e- oh yes, yes, premiums, premiums. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Who knows? It'll be interesting to uh, honestly. I'm gonna, like, yeah, I'm gonna read into the Dorsey thread or the uh, yeah the the root insurance the lemonades. I, I don't have a or we don't have any. What you might call it? I, know, I don't I'm, really I'm don't, have like, don't have. I don't have a gripe with lemonade, but I'm uh, the my my concern is that there's parts AI is not a com- I mean, tech is AI can be AI can be masqueraded as a competitive advantage when it really might not be. Yeah, but either way, I'm fascinated to see how these play out. You know, like yeah. if they end up winning, it'll just be fun to watch. Uh, but it were overly invest in them? No, no <laughs> way, no way. Yeah, even if they win, we'll miss the we'll, we'll miss the miss, boat. Uh, I'll be comfortable with that. Uh, all right, last one. Now this is a funny one. Um, you may have you probably saw this, but real marijuana is in hot water. Uh, I woke up today and saw this tweet from Ryan Mack and I laughed for a solid minute because first off his tweet was this is without exaggeration the dumbest I'll keep it PG you know stuff I have ever heard and it was an Instagram post from Forbes and I'm gonna read this to you would you buy quote digital marijuana blockchain based NFTs have officially arrived in cannabis and Jesse Grundy would like to sell you a bag of digital marijuana Grundy is the founder and chief executive of Peaks, spelled with a Z, of course, an upscale cannabis brand based in Oakland, California. Grundy is selling what he believes is a world's first, a bag of cannabis that exists only, sorry, I can't can't keep it in, that exists only online linked to blockchain technology for, quote, authenticity, called, quote, lava coin. (laughs) 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 <laughs> the digital bag is available anywhere in the world, and unlike most marijuana in most other places, it is also legal anywhere in the world. Because it is Link in the bio for details. Of course, you got to have that in the end there. What do you think of this? Are you buying in? On the, this is going to be the new cannabis bubble. Who do they think's buying in? Investors, or do they think uh, people that enjoy cannabis are going to buy it without it's any effects? It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. I, look, am I upset that... That might be worse than the $85 fart. <laughs> no, it's worse, yeah. It's worth... $85 or 85 Was it 85 It wasn't 85000 It was, 85, it was, it was $85. $85. The NFT thing, I'm glad it's not... Okay, maybe it'll end up being bad. I'm glad it's not scamming people or anything like that. I'm glad that it's just rich people that made money on cryptocurrency just wasting it. I'm, yeah. I, you know, it's not bad. It, uh, yeah, it's it makes it gives us plenty of content for hot water. So. <laughs> yeah, dude, if they want to waste their money on this, I I'll laugh at it all day. But we got to wrap up. So all right. buy so hold, buy so hold. The theme is our last three deep dives. So Callaway, Redfin, and Ping Identity. Okay, okay, we're gonna throw. And I know Redfin's everyone loves Redfin, but we got some DMs from a guy in the or no guy or girl i don't know if it was guy or girl but in the real estate industry mm. who was not as bullish on redfin's business model as people think he actually ranked or they ranked the competitors as one compass a company we didn't even talk about two zillow three redfin and then they were they said open door was stupid so i'm unsure about redfin so i'm gonna sell it 
because it's just an industry I don't get. Uh, probably Callaway's probably number one for me. Mm-hmm. Paying Identity seems solid. Seems like it's old. Yeah, like the, I liked a lot of what they had. Management seemed good. But it's also an industry I don't understand. That yeah, it, it's not. I don't understand what competitive advantage they'd have versus Okta, and that's concerning, even though their valuation's a lot less than Okta. Yeah. Or is it Okta? I'd, do it th- I'd probably go the same way. All right. Callaway, I mean, Callaway with Topgolf is compelling. Like, they're not going to have, they have to invest so much in that real estate that it's going to, the, the cash flow is going to look bad for a few years. But I think in like five to 10 years, there's a chance it's printing a lot of cash. Yeah. Plus, real estate only goes up. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that goes without saying if the, the Jim O'Shaughnessy gift. <laughs> All right. Um, anecdotal evidence for me, I guess I have two. Okay. Uh, how many do you have? Two. Okay. My first one, I went to a grocery store this week. I know, pretty crazy. Uh, and I realized that I hate self-checkout. I think it's terrible. Um, there's never enough space for my items. And yeah. if I try to rearrange them, it yells at me. And then uh, an attendant has to come over. I would rather just go back to the stuff where there's multiple checkouts being attended to. Because right now, there's like no one... There isn't enough people using the typical checkout lines that there's not, they aren't very staffed. And so you either have a fat line over there or you have to go through this terrible process of self checkout. Yeah. So I say we just get rid of it. Uh, that's my take. I agree. Trader Joe's has the best option. I know we're Sprouts Farmers Market people, so we can't, uh, that's the competition. But Trader Joe's has a really, they're the best at checkout. They don't have self checkout. They, they don't even have you put it onto a thing. You just roll up the cart. They just, Take it out of your cart. They do it all for you, but you don't have to put it on the little conveyor belt, so it's mm. it's a lot faster. I don't know whatever process they have, it works really well. Um, and if you're if you're the Kroger exec or a grocery store exec, and you have self checkout, whatever numbers you think people are cheating you on self checkout, multiply by like ten because it's it's way worse than you oh, think. Yeah. The losses on that have got to be astronomical. And they're not worth it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I wrote a tweet this week about Instagram becoming Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot of slack from Facebook well, shareholders. It's FinTwit's, it's FinTwit's favorite stock right now. So, Okay. Here's uh, – I said e-commerce – basically what I said was I don't like the Instagram experience anymore. It's too bogged down by ads. People my age are saying the exact same thing. You're kind of feeling that. I mean because, you know, we're the – not to toot our own horn, but we're – you know, you're the target demo that could kind of you know, sure. be the, you know, the 20s, Gen Z, millennial type – you know, their yeah. target market. And if it's bogging down my experience, the e-commerce isn't going to work if I'm just going there once a day to check in on birthdays or, you know, whoever's posting some monumental life moment. Yeah. It, like, my engagement is far lower. I think uh, across my demographic, engagement feels lower. How now, now, that's all anecdotal. Yeah. But then I saw, and I, they started to talk about this IDFA stuff. Um, and Zuck went on a clubhouse and said how it's going to benefit them. With I, with with Toby and Daniel Eck, it was a great listen. Honestly, I don't know how they got those three together, but I had an epiphany that that the IDFA stuff is like the marketing ban on Altria uh, or on tobacco. Yeah, could be. I think that's it's going to have sort of the same regulatory that that regulation is going to have the same repercussions where it sort of insulates the people that already have reach. And Facebook can they'll have the ability to work around. Yeah, I mean that 
isn't really necessarily concerned, but are the is the user base is it gonna stay around? You know, is the consumer gonna stay around for as long? I will also yeah, I will also say this. When I tweeted out that Instagram was becoming Facebook, a whole bunch of people my age liked the tweet. Every Facebook shareholder, I believe, was older and they were like, No, you don't know what you're talking about. That was the point of the tweet. Yeah. It's becoming Facebook, it's going towards that older demographic. Yeah. I mean yeah, the People anecdotal, compare people. Obviously. Yeah, it's anecdotal. People, that's why. That's why it's called anecdotal evidence. That's, that's why, why I have it in this section. But. Yeah, people call Facebook a sin stock, and I potentially agree. But you have to ask. Okay, one is it going to trade at a sin stock multiple? You know, maybe that's it has to get down to that. And two, you know, comparing it to tobacco or something, it's a lot more dynamic of an industry. It's yeah, and it's feeling very bag holdery with every single person <laughs> saying I mean they just keep tweeting they keep loving it more and more at these cheap multiples which yes in theory is it's better they're yeah. right yeah but it's like the the market is pricing in what Zuck said on the Q4 conference call of concerns yeah. over uh, good ads yeah left tail risk is strong here and the market's just pricing it I don't think people should be surprised but if and I don't think it's be, a Microsoft 2010. I think too many people are treating it like that, where it's not. like the big tech right under your nose. You should have seen it the whole time. Yeah, if you uh, if you th- if you like Microsoft 2010, let me introduce you to some, you know, old Nintendo. Uh, <laughs> but that's a whole different story. I, I mean, right. Facebook. Look, either Facebook Facebook shareholders are gonna be. Oh, we gotta wrap things up. Sorry. Facebook shareholders are going to be either super right or totally wrong. I mean, I could see a way where this is a $2 trillion company that reduced the share count. I don't know. Give me right. a great investment. Got to get to yours. Okay. Uh, first one, DoorDash, anecdotally, pure anecdotal. This is totally personal. I'm their ultimate target customer, living in an apartment. Uh, younger, you know, kind sure. of in a place where you're supposed to – you know, like the type of demographic that they that's supposed to be a power user. I have no urge to use them, even though I don't. You're know. less lazy. Maybe people are super lazy, but is that really a bull case? Plus, the bull case we talked about is the logistics network. I'm hearing them supposed to compete on last mile delivery. Are they really going to compete with Amazon and XPO Logistics and UPS and FedEx? I mean, good luck. But sorry, last one. Souring on Peloton two. Yes, no diamond hands for me here. Um, we never owned shares. We were just kind of something we were researching a little bit. It was interesting. Yeah. I'll say argumentatively, emotionally or whatever, just for the take. I'm off them now. I, I just was bought convinced a cheap, for a while. Yeah, I was, I was too. Uh, I just bought a cheap wrong machine on Amazon. It's going to be here in two days, unlike the four-week wait on Peloton. Uh, YouTube has a lot of workout content. I really think it's fine. I just throw on a 20-minute thing. I just fail to grasp the competitive advantages. I don't know. Any thoughts? Am I totally discounting it? Too Everyone much? says the classes, and it does have a cult-like following, so I imagine that the classes are nice. Uh, I don't think people would say that if they didn't actually like the classes. That's true. They wouldn't just be lying. But and I, most, and it's not. I'm not just talking about shareholders. I'm talking yeah. about users. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. That is correct. I mean, if anything, their competitive advantage would be customer goodwill. But I, it's just hard to build. Okay. Well, we gotta get to uh, 
we have a hard stop here. So uh, thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Brad and Ian, for coming on. Uh, what am I missing here? Disclosures. Uh, oh, right. We are general partners at Arch Capital, so investors may have positions in the securities discussed. Uh, we are also not financial advisors, so anything we discuss on this podcast is not advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.